Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the game of golf has been an important part of Florida history since the 1860s. We'll talk with Richard Moorhead, co-author of Golf in Florida, 1886-1950. through 1950. Henry Plant and Henry Flagler probably did as much to popularize and spread golf in the state of Florida as any two people. Harold Williams remembers when Floridians used to eat sandhill cranes. The Seminoles ate them. All the crackers ate them. I consider myself a cracker, but I didn't eat them. And we'll visit the Florida Center of Political History and Government in Tallahassee. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. First week of the new year, it's 80 degrees. The rest of the country in a shivering freeze Breakfast on the balcony Salt spray in the air It almost seems like it ain't fair And the place to be Is at the Floridiana Hotel Soaking up the sunshine Riding the swells Won't you send me a postcard From the Floridiana and a hotel Bringing me blue skies And wishing me well Alcazar and the fountain blue Royal Palm and the breakers too Living it up in the gilded age Rockefeller, Carnegie The Vanderbilts are all down the sea Cause the winter sun is all the rage And the place to be is at the Floridiana Hotel Fishing the Gulf Stream Riding the swells Won't you send me a postcard from the Floridiana Hotel Bringing me blue skies and wishing me well Most of the Gilded Age hotels of the late 1800s and early 1900s that Chris Call is singing about, such as the Tampa Bay Hotel, the Hotel Coquina, and the Breakers, were very different, but they had one thing in common, golf courses. During the land boom of the 1920s, Florida communities were incomplete without a golf course, and the sport remains very popular today. Richard Moorhead is co-author of the book Golf in Florida, 1886-1950, through 1950, and says that many people believe that golf in America actually began in Florida. Well, it, it, there's, a, there's several versions of that story, but certainly uh, the, the John Hamilton Gillespie was the father of golf in Florida. He uh, struck the first two balls that we know about, or the first golf ball, on his two-hole course in 1886. Uh, the USGA carries uh, a golf course up in Yonkers, New York, as being the very first one, and that's essentially because they organized into a golfing club, if you will, and the date of that was 1888, even though 
Gillespie's two holes preceded that by a couple of years. Henry Plant was responsible for much development in Florida in the late 1800s and early 1900s through the construction of hotels linked by railroads. Golf played a big role in the development of Florida as Plant hired J. Hamilton Gillespie to build golf courses for all of his hotels. Gillespie uh, was hired by Plant, uh, Henry Plant, and he did the course at the Bel Air, the initial original six or seven hole course at the Bel Air Biltmore. He also did a course in Winter Haven. He did the six hole course that was around the racetrack in front of the Tampa uh, Bay Hotel. He did one in Kissimmee. He did uh, a nine-holer in Sarasota, which is right square in the middle of downtown Sarasota today, and he also did one in Havana, Cuba. Henry Plant and Henry Flagler were rivals in the railroad industry, the construction of hotels, and the building of golf courses. Richard Moorhead. Henry Plant and Henry Flagler probably did as much to popularize and spread golf in the state of Florida as any two people. Uh, Henry Flagler, as you know, built the uh, built the railroad down, and then of course, uh, they had to have hotels for them to stay in, and they'd have something for them to do, and they developed several different golf courses. Uh, Flagler took his down the east coast of Florida and had uh, golf courses built at St. Augustine and at uh, Ormond Beach and Palm Beach and in Miami. Henry Plant went down through the center of the state, out of uh, Jacksonville and Palatka, and came down through Ocala and Orlando and uh, Tampa Bay area and Sarasota and eventually on down to the Fort Myers area. So they were very, very influential in spreading the golf around Florida. According to the book Golf in Florida, 1886 through 1950, by 1930 there were more than 230 golf courses scattered throughout Florida from the Panhandle down through the center of the state along both coasts and down to Key West. One of these early courses was in St. Augustine surrounding that city's famous fort. The first nine-hole golf course in the state of Florida was around the old fort, Castello de San Marcos in St. Augustine. It started out as a three-holer, then went to a five-hole golf course, went to a six-holer, and eventually went to a nine-hole. Never was more than nine holes. Uh, there was also a course up in Jacksonville area called the Florida Country Club, which was built in 1896. Uh, 1895, of course, was when the, uh, the one in St. Augustine was built. The 18-hole the, the course, the earliest one, is the one that's at the Breakers today. It's on that same plot of land between the uh, ocean and the intercoastal, uh, by the, right in front of the Breakers Hotel. That's been an 18-hole golf course since 1895. While Flagler, Plant, and others were establishing golf courses to attract Florida tourists, private golf clubs were also being built. Richard Moorhead says the first private golf club was in Pensacola. That course that's there now was built in 1902, but there was a forerunner to that. There was a six-holer that was built uh, in 1899, and it's uh, at the was built at the corner of 12th Avenue and Lakeshore Drive. There's a historical marker on the corner of 12th Avenue and Lakeshore, and it was those six, seven holes were built on that fellow's estate. And then in 1902, they built Pensacola Country Club. And there was another golf club in, in uh, Pensacola that was built in the 20s called the Osceola Country Club. It's a municipal course, and it's there today. The public can play that golf course. And it, there was a lot of, lot of stories out there. There was a pro called Bill Melhorn. They called him Wild Bill Melhorn. And he was the pro at that golf course for about 20 years. But Pensacola's rich in golf heritage. Along with a huge influx of tourists in the early 20th century, Florida experienced a land boom in the 1920s. 
The rush to build new communities in Florida led to what Nick Wynn and Richard Moorhead call the golf explosion. It just boomed. Everywhere there was real estate development. It, it, it's amazing, uh, Ben, how much it, it follows the way you sell real estate today in Florida is with a golf course. And you did that back then. And uh, on the coast, of course, they had uh, developments going up, uh, many of them down in South Florida, George Merrick at uh, Coral Gables, and Addison Meisner in Boca Raton. And uh, there was also uh, Carl Dan here in Central Florida in Orlando that uh, built several developments, uh, Dubs Dread being one of them, and another one out at Mount Plymouth. Mount Plymouth was a tremendous uh, uh, golf course and uh, retirement uh, complex, if you will, they had four different golf courses planned, 72 holes. They also had an equestrian place. They had had a landing strip and a 150-bed hotel out there. So just about anywhere there was real estate development going on. Uh, Carl Fisher down in Miami Beach was another example. And Carl Fisher used elephants in some of his promotional materials. We have some of those vintage pictures in the book. Florida's land boom was, of course, followed by a bust, Many golf courses shut down in the late 1920s and 30s, and many planned courses were never constructed. Well, in the 1930s, it was, you, you had it correct when you said it was a bust because it, it, they, the golf courses went away about as quickly as they were developed. And uh, just a tremendous, there was no building of golf courses to amount to anything between about 1931 up through World War II. There was just a very, very much of a void. Everything was stagnant. And a lot of those developers lost their shirts, lost everything. I think uh, Willis Stovall, who was, I believe, the editor of the Tampa, uh, Tampa paper newspaper back then, kind of put all his money and eggs into the real estate basket. And I, I think he went from being a multimillionaire to penniless in about two years. As Richard Moorhead explains, the economic pendulum swung back to prosperity in Florida in the 1940s and 50s, and golf courses were part of that economic growth. After World War II, uh, there was a lot of municipal golf courses that were built. There was a lot of money available, and, you know, they wanted to uh, had a lot of the soldiers coming back and everything from the war, and a lot of the municipal uh, municipalities wanted to design golf courses for recreation. So there was a big influx of golf courses that were built in the 1950s. Probably in the 1950s, I would say that there was probably about 200 or so golf courses that were built during the 50s in the state of Florida. Creating the book Golf in Florida, 1886 through 1950, was clearly a labor of love for Richard Moorhead, who enjoyed visiting the historic courses documented in the book. I did. My wife and I visited from Fernandina Beach down to Key West on the East Coast. We went from Pensacola down to Marco Island on the West Coast and just about everything in the middle and center part of the state. It was wonderful. We visited just about every historical society, most of those golf courses, and every one of them, once they found out the scope of our project, were very, very cooperative in helping us locate some of the vintage photographs and that sort of things for the book. Some of the photographs used in Golf in Florida, 1886 through 1950, are from Moorhead's personal collection, but he and co-author Nick Wynn also searched many other collections around the state to find appropriate images. We got quite a lot of photographs from a lot of the postcard collections. Uh, we went to a lot of those postcard uh, shows and things, and I tell you what, it, 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 it takes some patience and some time to do that. I thought all these things would be cataloged like golf or sports or something, but they're not. You have to dig through all of them and find your, find your material. But it was a fun process. We also got a lot of vintage photographs up at the USGA headquarters in Far Hills, New Jersey. 
Uh, we got some material out of the, uh, a lot of material, as a matter of fact, out of the St. Augustine Historical Society and their library up in St. Augustine. We've got quite a few things out of the library here, uh, the Florida Historical Society Library. But an awful lot of it came from these various historical societies or the golf courses themselves. And we collected, I guess we've got probably a little over 2,000 photographs. When hearing about a book with hundreds of photographs of golf courses in Florida, you may be envisioning lots of images of grass and sand traps, and they are here, but the book also contains many other interesting photos. The best pictures I think we have in there is one that I was mentioning a while ago, about 1895, and that course that's around uh, the, the old fort in uh, St. Augustine. That's a real interesting one because they, it shows they had, to, they had to hit their shot over a corner of the fort. And the thing that amazes me about that photo and a lot of other ones is the number of women that played golf back then. And, they, and everybody in their finery, the guys with ties and coats on and the women with the long dresses and all. That was a funny one, or an interesting one. I shouldn't say funny. Uh, an interesting one was one we had with Rosie the Elephant down in, um, in Miami with Carl Fisher when he was developing Miami Beach. We have photos of, of Rosie uh, as a caddy. We have photos of, of Rosie uh, having a, a professional golfer hit a uh, golf shot off of the uh, trunk that was raised up. Uh, th- those were some very interesting ones. But they had all over the state, we had just outstanding photos. Some of the things, too, that were interesting in our book are some of the old uh, clubhouses. And, for example, the Hollywood, uh, uh, Hollywood Country Club uh, golf course, they had a retractable roof so that when they had to dances and social events and things, they could roll back that retractable roof and dance under the stars, that sort of thing. There's some photos in there and some acknowledgments of places Al Capone used to like to play golf and things like that that are also interesting in the book. Golf attracts celebrities, sports figures, and politicians, all of whom are represented in this book. Richard Moorhead. Yeah, Babe Ruth used to love to play golf. He'd play a lot of golf. Connie Mack would play a lot of golf. A lot of the, the old baseball players loved to play down here. Um, Governor, uh, Governor Al Smith of Ohio used to play quite a lot down here. Um, Woodrow Wilson played golf. I think we may have one of him in there. Um, Warren G. Harding was a very big golfer, and I think we've got several photos of Harding playing golf around here. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I think Harding picked his cabinet and 1921 or 23, somewhere in that range. He picked his cabinet while playing golf at the old Ponce de Leon golf course up in St. Augustine. In 1930, there were about 200 golf courses in Florida. Today, there are about 1,400 and more are on the way. Like any golf enthusiast, Richard Moorhead has his favorite courses. One of the ones that I I truly enjoy uh, playing is an old course that people can play today right in the Orlando area. It's called Rolling Hills Country Club. That was uh, built in 1926. Walter Hagen used to play out there. Hagen had a, a golf, manufa- golf club manufacturing plant, and he used to play a lot out at Rolling, uh, at Rolling Hills. Dubs Dread is another great one here in Central Florida. And, uh, as a matter of fact, they just redid that and tried to bring it back to the, uh, the same type of architecture that Tom Bendelow had in mind when he built it in 1924. Uh, I mentioned the one at the Breakers. If you want to play a, an old vintage golf course, that's a good one. The one at the, at the Biltmore, the Miami Biltmore, is another fascinating old course. Um, another good course is over at the Bel Air Biltmore. That was an old Donald Ross course. Ross did some 40 golf courses in this state, of which 30-something of them are still around in some shape, form, or fashion, and a lot of them uh, people can play that 
that are not looking to get into a private club. Richard Moorhead and Nick Wynn are authors of the book Golf in Florida, 1886 through 1950, published by Arcadia Books. You can order this and many other Florida books online at myfloridahistory.org. Won't you send me a postcard from the Floridian Hotel? Bringing me blue skies and wishing me well. Won't you bring me blue skies and wish me well? Won't you bring me blue skies and wish me well? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to view historic photographs, read about this day in Florida history, become a member of the Florida Historical Society, and much more. You can also listen to archived editions of this program. Contemporary Floridians see three sandhill cranes by their doorstep. A potential meal is probably not the first thing that comes to mind when watching these graceful birds. Janie Gould talks with Harold Williams, who does remember people eating sandhill cranes. Harold Williams is a pilot and citrus grower in St. Lucie County. His parents planted their first groves here in 1900. They had moved south after a freeze killed citrus in Rockledge, but left groves in St. Lucie County unharmed. Harold grew up on the family farm near Ten Mile Creek, west of Fort Pierce. When he was a boy during the Great Depression, hungry people hunted sandhill cranes. The Seminoles ate them. All the crackers ate them. I consider myself a cracker, but I didn't eat them. They look so tall and skinny, I'm surprised they would have much meat on them. They've got a breast about the size of my fist. White meat. Were there a lot of them back then? They were usually in pairs here and there. I was flying north up to... A uh, turnpike going up toward Kissimmee during dry weather, I saw a, a long slew. I've never seen so many of them in one place in my life, but that lost track counting, I got up to 20-some. Cranes weren't the only wildlife that was abundant in those days. There were a lot of turkeys up and down the Ten Mile Creek Swamp. They weren't overabundant, but if you knew where they, they ranged, there were plenty of them. The uh, turkeys nest on the ground, and, and a lot of them, their nests are destroyed with machinery working the grove. I've mowed through several turkey nests, not even knowing they were there. During the Depression, when jobs were scarce, people who were desperate for food nearly wiped out the sandhill cranes and the wild turkeys. Cranes in those days acted nothing like their descendants, those languorous feathered creatures you see around ponds and canals. 
They weren't tame like they are now because they'd been shot at so many times. They were very skittish. They've been protected now and people make a mistake of feeding them. They don't realize how dangerous they are. If uh, you confront one of them and he has a problem, he'll peck your eyes out and never miss. They have favorite grazing grounds. They eat a lot of grubs. They move from one place to the other, but when you see them, ordinarily they're feeding. People feed them now, and that, that's the worst thing they can do because it, it uh, makes them too tame and they can get in trouble too easily. If you wound him and then go to him to catch him, if he can stand or he can reach your head, he'll peck both your eyes out, dip, dip. Another animal that was in demand during the Depression spends a lot of its time underground. That would be the gopher tortoise. People used to walk that sand ridge along the railroad. They made a tool where they could reach in their burrow and, and pull them out. They were a delicacy. Did you ever eat those? I had them for pets when my father built a pen, and it was my responsibility to feed them and water them. We didn't eat them. Harold Williams' family grew their own citrus and vegetable, raised their own livestock, and had chickens. Their guinea hens squawked like a burglar alarm when predators were near. Bobcats were the usual suspects. And that was one animal that no one wanted to eat, not even during the Depression. It was a hobby hunting those bobcats. A good pack of dogs would tree one of them post-haste. Then they were shot out of the top of a tree. They didn't serve any useful purpose, and they weren't good to eat, and they killed your chickens and your groceries. Harold Williams is married to Ada Coates Williams. She's a noted author, historian, and lecturer. Her books include histories of Fort Pierce and of the notorious Ashley Gang. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Visitors to Florida are often struck by the sight of our state's old Capitol building, surrounded and overshadowed by the towering modern complex that houses the current state government. Despite many obstacles, the old Capitol has been preserved and is home to a permanent exhibit bringing Florida's political history to life. Bill Dudley has more. For over 130 years, this is where Florida's governors made decisions that shaped how our state grew. The voice of Florida Governor Jeb Bush welcomes visitors to a section of the newly opened Florida Center of Political History and Governance in Tallahassee's old Capitol building. The rooms are richly furnished in dark-stained oak and mahogany, but there's not a computer or copy machine in sight. That's because the year is 1902. The Capitol's fireplaces have recently been replaced by modern steam radiators. There's a new grand staircase under an art glass dome. There are polished brass spittoons, and the governor's office now has its own telephone. We're standing right now in the governor's suite, and it has been restored to as close as we can come to the way it looked in 1902 when William S. Jennings of Brooksville 
was the governor of Florida. Eric Robinson is historian and curator with Tallahassee's Museum of Florida History. Here you see the governor's original desk and chair from 1902. This is a mahogany piece, unlike most of the rest of the furniture that was just oak. The candlestick telephone that you see on the desk is from the time period. It's not his original one. Surprisingly, uh, Bird's Grocery Store got number one for the telephone exchange, and, and the governor's office was only number six, at least in 1902. Nearby, a collection of campaign memorabilia includes Bob Graham's work gloves and Lawton Child's well-worn walking shoes and the elaborate inaugural gowns of former first ladies. But beside the odd bit of historical trivia, there's a lot to see and do here for tourist or student or even scholar. Museum education specialist Andrew Edel. The way the building is laid out today roughly parallels the way it was used 100 years ago when all three branches of government were in this building. On this floor, for instance, the executive wing with the governor's office and the uh, cabinet. On the south side of the first floor was the Supreme Court, and then upstairs were the House and Senate. On the opposite end of the building from the governor's rooms are the chambers of the state's Supreme Court. In 1902, there were two sets of justices hearing cases. Up until 1902, there were only three Supreme Court judges, and they had to hear all the appeals from the circuit court. There was no court of appeals. It went straight from the circuit court to the Supreme Court directly. And they couldn't handle the volume of work that they had to do, so they created two teams of three justices, and for several years that was sufficient. Just off the court chambers are a set of display rooms that spotlight some of the issues state leaders have wrestled with over the years, including Election 2000. This is one of our most popular rooms in the building. It is amazing to us that people throughout the whole world have heard about butterfly ballots. They want to come in here and they want to see the butterfly ballot, which we, we have over here in a voting machine from Palm Beach. Almost invariably, everyone has a very strong opinion as to whether it was easy to read or not easy to read, but always one way or the other. I do not know of a time in the history of this state when the changes have been so great as the changes we are experiencing at the present time. The words of Senate President Verrill Pope praising the state's 1967 reapportionment ring out once again in the Senate chamber upstairs, where visitors can also hear reenacted excerpts from speeches by Josiah Walls, the first African-American senator, Beth Johnson, the first female senator, and others. For the first time in the history of Florida, the legislature is based on one man, one vote. This is the recreated Florida House of Representatives. We have changed a little bit the original 1902 appearance in order to accommodate a participatory audiovisual program in which families or groups or school children can vote on issues that the Florida legislature has voted on in the past. We have little voting pads on the 1902 desk that were not there in 1902 when a voice roll call was the only way to record a vote. I want you to look at this stew. It's got three legs. If you pull one of them out, you can't sit on it. it Echoes of Florida's past These coexist with modern technology. Visitors can send email to current lawmakers and even play reporter, standing in front of a TV camera to introduce an excerpt from a famous gubernatorial speech, like Lawton Child's 1991 State of the State Address. I think these three legs are you, Madam President, you, Mr. Speaker, and me. 
Curator Eric Robinson hopes these interactive exhibits, the memorabilia, and the historical setting will give visitors to the Florida Center of Political History and Governance a new sense of connection to our state's government. For me as a curator, I would like to see people come away from here with a sense that, that they can affect the process by speaking up and that it's possible to speak up and it's possible to be heard. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week to continue exploring how our past is shaping our future. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. Thank you.